thanks for choosing this VJSM podcast to listen to Professor Gwen Jull. She's a professor of physiotherapy at the University of Queensland. And when I think of the name Gwen Jull, I think of neck pain, headache, manual therapy, as in a profession and a journal. I think of a mentor for people like Paul Hodges, Michelle Sterling, Deb Fowler, someone who's really moved the profession of physiotherapy forward for 30 years. And we'll be touching on each of those elements in this chat this morning. Welcome to the podcast, Gwen, and thanks, thanks a lot. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the introduction, Karim. So we'll just get into neck pain first and talk mm-hmm. about the scenario where a patient comes in, let's say they're 50, they're a professor, they spend a lot of time at the keyboard, um, you've got a feeling they might not have great posture, but they say they've got neck and shoulder pain. How do you approach that patient? Um, well, I suppose one of the, the most important things is to consider them as a person and, and find out from them really how the condition is affecting them. Our, our life now is becoming so much more sedentary that it's very, very important to look at how they're actually functioning in the workplace because you can give the greatest treatment you know, in the world, but if they go back to work and literally sit in provocative postures and, and aggravate their neck again, it'll all come back. So I, I think it's, I think it is very important to understand them, their work, uh, their lifestyle, um, and, and what are the factors that might be putting their neck under unnecessary strain. So it's, it's, it's getting the whole context of the, of the condition. But then it's very, very important um, that you look at the patient from the physical aspect and do a very thorough physical examination. I think that's one of the biggest things or biggest developments in physio over the last, say, 10 or 20 years is that we now, our clinical examination skills to really get a good idea of the articular system, the muscle system and, and how the muscles can control the joints, etc. Has just developed tremendously, so that so that these days we can do a uh, very efficient examination, which then forms the basis for our treatment. What are the key elements of that examination? It's to look at their movement, but it's also to look at how they move and how they control movement. Uh, often the source of nociception um, in relation to neck pain, even if it's posturally induced, uh, is probably more commonly the, the articular system, the facet joints, or possibly even the disc, but commonly in those postural pains it's the facet joints. But it's also what that pain does or what the sedentary occupation does to the muscle system. It, it changes the behaviour and the coordination or the way the muscles coordinate together. Um, and that becomes quite important in the way that we then apply our treatment and our exercise program for the patient. Take us through just the principles of specific assessment that you would do in that case. Okay, well, I would, I would look at their posture and just take some time um, to look at how they can sort of maintain a postural position because what we found is that if you ask them to just sit there, their actual posture will probably be okay, but as they work, they'll tend to often go into that slump posture. So, so I'll, I'll look at that posture and I'll look at if I can correct the posture, does that affect or does that change uh, their neck pain, range of motion, etc., so that I can prove if there's a link between the two. 
I'll then look at active movements, and some of our active movements can be now quite diagnostic. For example, um, Toby Hall's done a lot of work on the flexion rotation test so that we could localise the source of nociception, say, to the C12 joint. Uh, in Canada, Jeff Schneider has also done work looking at the opposite, the extension rotation test, which can help localise uh, facet joint problems at C2334. So that we'll look at movements both to get a baseline of, of, of how much range they've got, but also to look at um, diagnostic possibilities to, to give us a bit of a, uh, an idea of what the pathoanatomical source of pain might be. Uh, after looking at the joints, we'll look at um, uh, the muscle system and uh, we've got several quite specific tests where we can separate out the function of the deep and superficial flexors. Uh, probably not quite as good in our, in our assessment of the extensors in trying to separate out groups, but we can get quite a good idea of, of the stability capacity of those muscles, uh, which is important in any job that's, that's requiring that um, maintenance of a postural position. And how do you look for those differences between the deep and superficial extensors? Um, well, we did some research. Uh, Sean O'Leary and um, company, Jim Elliott and company, did some research uh, a couple of years ago. And we actually showed that we can bias, when we ask people to extend their neck, if you allow them to extend their head or their craniocervical region, the superficial extensors, they love to work, so they come in and, and lever off the head. If you ask the patient to actually extend their head or roll their head back, but keep their craniocervical region in a neutral position, that actually takes away some of the mechanical advantage of the of the uh, superficial extensors and so therefore it forces the deeper extensors to work. So we've, we can get some targeting by asking um, patients to, to extend, keeping their craniocervical area in a neutral position. To translate that sort of thing into English, what we actually do is get patients propped on their elbows <clears throat> and let them just roll their head forward and then we ask them to roll their head back then as they come back, we ask them to pretend that they've got a book that's between their hands. So as they roll their head backwards into extension, they must keep their eyes on the book. And that will automatically keep that craniocervical area in a neutral position. So that's the way we, we put a bias in the test onto the deep neck extensors. And what we find with a lot of the neck pain patients is they fatigue quite readily uh, doing that test or they just find it very, very difficult to... Uh, uh, to actually do the movement. Um, when you say prop, prop them up uh, on the elbow so they're holding their head in a hand? There's two ways you can do it. They can either be in four-point kneeling or they lie on their stomachs and then in a commando crawl type position, so propped up on their elbows. At the very start, when you mentioned about assessing the posture of someone and they might look okay before they start working, or saying, if I can correct them, did you mean correct them by instruction or correct them with taping or when you say if I can correct them, in what way? Uh, I usually actively correct them. So in other words, I'll, I'll facilitate them at the pelvis and get them to sit in an upright position. An easy way to do is to, to let them relax down and then ask them to rotate, for example, and see if they've got limitation of movement and pain. And then if you correct them by getting them to, to um, move to an upright 
uh, position with their pelvis, you'll find that 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 basically will correct or give a basic correction of the rest of their spine. And you can often quickly get the relationship if you then ask them to rotate their head and find a difference in their range of movement or pain. That can often put a direct link um, between a slump posture and pain and an upright posture and no pain. So it gives you it gives you a rough or general idea of how much that postural position might be contributing to their pain. Also, a, a salient lesson to the patient, by the way, if they see that they can or feel that they can change their pain and change their range of movement purely by sitting in a be- better posture. Tell us what you and your colleagues have discovered about whiplash from 20 years of work in a couple of minutes on a podcast. Oh dear. I think one of the biggest things we've learnt is that we now have, an, and a lot of this later work is being done by Michelle Sterling, is that we've now got a good idea of, um, of people who recover and those who won't recover so well. So there's almost three trajectories for a person who's had a whiplash or people who have had whiplash. So around about 50-odd percent of them will get better uh, reasonably uneventfully uh, within a couple of months. And then we have probably another 30-odd percent who will get better but will uh, stand to suffer persistent, milder levels of pain. And um, our tracking has taken them up to two years. Others, other people have, have taken it out a bit further. So it goes on for a number of years. And then the, the major worry is this sort of 15 to 20 percent group at the top um, who who do, they, they'll get some relief of pain, but they'll have persistent, more moderate levels of pain, again going on for many months and sometimes many years. And I, I, I think being able to, to sort of study this uh, predictions or get some predictors of outcomes is very, very important because it's, there's no one all, one size fits all treatment for anything, but particularly for whiplash. And in fact, um, that that group with the poorest outcome uh, is a real uh, stumbling block for for every health profession. Uh, you know, a lot of things have been tried, and that's where people are putting a lot of the emphasis on now is trying to work out um, why do these people go on to have these more moderate levels of persistent pain, and and certainly what we can do do about it. But th- there are people all over the world now looking at this from genetic factors, from stress factors, from injury to nervous nerve tissue factors. There's, there's a lot of, different, uh, lot of different aspects being examined, but we certainly haven't got the answer for that. In your clinical experience, do you think you had a feel for that when a patient first comes in, so you don't know which direction you're going to be on, um, but did you have a feel and which factors did you use to assess that yourself? The, the things that um, tend to predict a poor outcome are, are certainly people with initial high levels of pain and, and um, they're, they're talking five, six, seven out of ten. And when we look at, when we get them to complete a neck disability index, their, their neck disability index is high. They look in pain, there's usually a lot of muscle guarding. Um, some of the work Michelle's done is, is show that they've got early signs of, of um, mechanical hyperalgesia and, and also cold hyperalgesia. So they'll often talk to you about being sensitive to cold. So it looks as though these people, um, 
in particular, uh, get this augmented central pain processing, you know, very, very early in the piece, which is probably why they're a bit recalcitrant to uh, just ordinary simple analgesics and physical therapy methods. We'll put the link for a very handy patient handbook that you and Michelle Sterling have done um, with this podcast. Not to sound too miserable about whiplash, I think we've got to remember that um, the vast, well, the majority of, all of them get some relief and again, 50% um, with, with with usual types of treatments, if they're done quite nicely, do very well and the other 30% um, um as I said, often have ongoing persistent, but it's milder pain. It's pain that's uh, uh, livable with. But uh, but when you you mentioned that booklet that Michelle and I have written, it, it, it's helpful for most whiplash patients. Um, but as I said, that that top 20% is still the 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 group that is uh, challenging us, all of us at the moment. So let's talk about treatment for the more straightforward one potentially and then uh-huh. get to the one. And, and, you know, if you've got a new grad listening, they've been taught about treating neck pain, do they just use the principles that they learned there or what's the straightforward approach you know, optimistically going in yeah. at the front end? If they use the principles that this patient has got, a, a ligamentous strain, uh, for example, it, it's don't push them too hard that they've got to... Uh, you want them to gently get their movement back. You want them to je- gently sort of start activating their their muscles, etc. But I, I'd say my, my my main piece of adv- advice would be to to tread slowly and and warily. Just just literally, it's almost help nature uh, heal the injury with with movement, muscle activation, rather than get in there and try to do anything that's spectacularly fast. I, I think that's probably one of the main things I've learned about whiplash is, is to hurry slowly in a way. I mean, the other particular psychological thing that, uh, or psychological uh, effect that whiplash can have is, is the post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, again, we don't see that so much in, in other types of neck pain, but we certainly see it in um, in, uh, in the whiplash people. And so, again, your, the, the assurance that you give the patient, um, uh, telling them what uh, you think is going on, telling them what the, the, as you said before, what the trajectory is, what, what rate of recovery they can expect, I think are, are extraordinarily important uh, components of treatment. Should we now move to the case where an expert physiotherapist is seeing someone after many referrals? So it's a, it's a consulting practice and a person has heard that this physio is very good. What approach would you recommend for that physio? Well, first of all, they've, they've got to really un- find out from the patient what, um, what sort of management they've had. Because when they're in that um, chronic or, or longer-term situation, it, it's often necessary to have a multi-professional approach um, so that you want to check that they have uh, in the past had adequate pain management and that's where you'd liaise uh, closely with the general practitioner. Um, again, it's not, it's not hard to pick up uh, with, with some subtle questioning if they have got... Um, uh, any post-traumatic stress syndrome and, and we do know that if they've got um, post-traumatic stress uh, symptoms that it can affect how, how, how well they, could, they can get better. Um, there are formal questionnaires, the impact of event scale for example that you might use that would uh, 
give you more confidence that the patient has got uh, potentially got symptoms. And if they have, then you they need to see and, and can be helped very considerably by a health psychologist. So I think I think the the role of the specialist looking at that chronic sort of condition is is to really look at the overall um, overall condition, maybe even take on a little bit of a role of of overall management of the patient with the GP, because what often happens is that these people get so desperate that they go you know get on that that traditional merry-go-round and and have nobody sort of overseeing their, their total management. So I think you've got to sort that out. Um, and then from the, the physio or rehab point of view, again, it's, it's to check what they have had. And uh, again, my belief is that we can help them, and not only my belief, we've done clinical trials on, on the chronic flash patients. And again, you can offer them or they can achieve uh, quite significant um, pain relief and, and functional improvement if you do a comprehensive rehabilitation program with them, which mainly focuses on exercise at this uh, at this stage of their recovery. I, I think it's uh, I think it's not fair to promise them cures or anything like that because we know the chances of them getting 100% better once they've got into that cycle um, is not good. But it's it's I think it's the assurance, it's the understanding, it's the empathy. And it's to make sure that they are on a management program of the things that are very important. What's the role of manual therapy within these things we've been discussing? This is my emphasis on treating multimodally, um, is th- that there is nothing that will ease joint pain better than manual therapy. Uh, it, it's very, very good. So uh, the chronic whiplash, um, you can still use it, but the, the what I probably wanted to emphasise is that to just treat them passively endlessly is not a good thing. But if we go back to our postural neck pain that we started off with a little while ago, if they've got some very painful joints there, um, the manual therapy can um, modulate that pain very effectively, very effectively. But again, unless they are taught um, the the appropriate postures and how to assume them during the day unless you you re-educate the muscle system the strain on the joints and therefore the joint pain will come back but um, so with manual therapy uh, I'm a big fan of manual therapy I'm a big fan of manual therapy in context of, of a multimodal program is there a problem when patients are obsessed about investigations MRI they come in and um what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's quite interesting. Um, I haven't found that to be such a problem in the neck as, as I know it sometimes is in the low back. Um, so that you don't have, I don't have patients so often coming in, particularly with MRIs, really, you know, stressing over the fact that they haven't had an MRI and they'd like an MRI. Um, I'll often explain to patients about x-rays and the fact that, uh, Often there's not a close relationship between what is seen on a radiograph and what they're complaining of. Not, not that I would, I don't want to dismiss imaging completely. Um, but I must admit, I, we just don't seem to find, well I haven't anyway, uh, found it such a big problem in the neck as it is, seems to be in the back with people requiring or asking for MRIs. There's a lot of discussion about trigger points and you know, dry needling. What are your thoughts? I, don't, I can't get carried away with trigger points because I really do think they're a secondary phenomenon um, and, and they can be painful um, 
uh, I've no doubt about that, but I do think they're secondary. And so to have your primary treatment um, directed at, at treating trigger points um, is is not my modus operandi. So I would look at the reason why that muscle is getting painful, the reason you know why they could be, be getting trigger points. Um, in relation to dry needling, um, the, the, the research is not coming out too strongly in favour of dry needling, making a significant difference. But again, this can be part of um, the difficulty with RCTs. But, but the main thing with dry needling is that dry needling um, may get an immediate relief of pain, but the problem is the pain will come back. And so that just just treating the pain is not enough and, and we also know that uh, relieving the pain does not automatically make the muscle function uh, appropriately. Um, it, it doesn't automatically reverse any impairment in the muscle. And so that I think if you look at, um, uh, at dry needling as an um, adjunct treatment that you'll use to, to, to try to decrease pain levels, but it, it must be a precursor of you then facilitating the muscle system. That's probably a great place to leave it, Gwen. I really appreciate your time today. That's okay. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. And you know there are over 200 podcasts on the BJSM site. A great way to get easy access to all the BJSM content is through our mobile app. And thanks for listening. Have an active day. 